everyone. I'm really excited to have Austin Lieberman on the podcast today. I've been following him on Twitter for the past six months. He's served as a captain in the Air Force for around seven years and taught himself how to invest, which is super inspiring. It means that you don't need to have a business or finance background to be a great investor. And the biggest thing that stood out to me is Austin's transparency. He really makes it a point to talk about himself and the ideas and picks that he's made regardless of the results. And he continuously shares his learnings, both good and bad, which is pretty rare to see online. A lot of times you see the success stories or you see a lot of bad content. And I think Austin is one of the few that puts out great content consistently and doesn't just talk about success in hindsight. And a couple of months ago, Austin and a few investors started some investing, which is a great subscription service on providing guidance on potential investments. I've personally benefited from some of the picks that Austin has made and would highly recommend checking this out. So with that, I would love to introduce you, Austin, to the audience and give you a chance to talk a bit more about yourself. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to come on. And I mean, I just want to let you keep talking and saying all these great things about me. So just keep going. No. Yeah. I, so it's been great to get to know you over Twitter for a little while. I definitely appreciate all your support. Appreciate you reaching out and appreciate this opportunity. And it's just really cool to see more and more people trying to help more of the world learn about investing and in the power of what it can do for your, our lives. And so I see that in what you're doing and, and with your newsletter and podcasts and everything you talk about on Twitter. So it's exciting. I'm excited to, to watch you grow as well. And when I say that, like, I'm excited to watch myself grow and learn. Like, I'm not saying that from a position of expertise or anything like that. Like, I'm in this right with you. And you nailed it. I mean, my growing up, never had a, an investing background. We didn't struggle as a family, but very middle class parents. We lived, you know, paycheck to paycheck. We probably didn't have to, but we did because of the choices they made and the fact that they didn't invest and they didn't think about budgeting and stuff like that. And so that was my exposure to finance and investing growing up was almost kind of like a lack of it. And so as I progressed through college and then my, my first job and commissioned into the Air Force, I had that in my mind and my wife is the same way. She's from a family with a similar background and parents are incredibly supportive and loving, but just we're never doing the types of long-term things financially. And so we both experienced that in our lives and as wonderful and privileged as we were growing up, both white kids and not to make this like political, but both white kids in America do, you know, like we had a lot going for us, right? We also wanted to think more long-term and about how we could set our lives up and our kids' lives up to really, it's not like to provide for our kids or anything like that, but I want our kids to be able to take risks and go out there and, and try to achieve things um, and know that, hey, if they fail, like if they try and fail, we'll be there to help them out. If they're just lazy and don't try, we're going to let them continue being lazy and see what the impact is. And then ultimately, you know, it's cool to think about us having financial freedom and stuff like that. But when you think about the compounding of investments over time, we're small people and it's going to be a small impact, but we think we could have an impact, like a good impact on our local community, the, you know, the next level out county state and at a higher level, like you can, you can start to have an impact like that over time. And so that's kind of, that's all I've been doing. And so I've been investing in stocks since 2000. 11 really, but, but kind of seriously out there, like sharing stuff since 2014, 2015, I got a lot more serious about it in 2018, which is when I transitioned out of the active duty air force and into the civilian world and a corporate job. And then I was recently, and this all kind of comes full circle, right? I was recently unexpectedly let go from my full-time job which is, you know, that's a lot of people are in that position because of, because of the COVID pandemic. And thankfully, we have been saving and we have been investing. And so that's unfortunate and it, it stinks, but we're going to be okay because of the fact that we've been investing in stuff. And so, yeah, just happy to be here. 
Yeah, totally. And I think you touch on a lot of great points. And the biggest one to me is financial independence. I think when it comes to investing, whether it's stocks or any other asset class, as long as you're patient with it, spend a lot of time or at least a healthy amount of time in like in investing in the right things, you can build financial independence, which affects your life, which affects your family's life and the people around yourself. And I think the additional step that you've taken that very few others have taken is sharing the lessons, sharing the insights that you've learned along the way and continue to learn as you go through this journey. And yeah. I think uh, that, that part is huge and you know, hopefully look forward to sharing some of those insights over the next 30 or so minutes. I think on that point, would love to just get into it. I think when it comes to getting started, the first question that comes to most people's minds is, you know, whether should, like, should I invest in stocks? Yeah. And and why, why is that? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. It's an important question. Kind of the conventional mentality out there. And a lot of my friends still today and just growing up in the military and, and then even friends I have at the different jobs I've had and my family members, a lot of them think the stock market's rigged. It's just like gambling. It's just like going to the casino. I don't blame anybody for thinking that because for one, we don't learn a whole lot about finance and investing in school and stuff like that. So it, it, then if you want to learn about it, you've got to go and, and find this stuff out. And there's anybody that's on Facebook or social media, there's terrible information in everything and investing included, there's some terrible stuff out there. And so to start answering that question, I think the most important thing is a foundational understanding of what stocks are, right? And when you purchase shares, when you purchase stock in an individual company, you are actually becoming a very, very small part owner of that company. You are, you literally own a fractional piece of that business. And so when we take that a step further, when you buy shares of stock, you should buy those shares because for whatever reason, and and we'll probably get into this more, like how do we know this stuff? But you buy those shares because you think that business is going to improve over the long term. So that's kind of the foundational understanding of what a stock is. So now let's rewind and talk about like why stocks in the S&P 500, which when we say that, we're just basically talking about the 500, and this isn't exact, but the 500 biggest companies in America that represent the American economy. So if you look at the S&P 500 over the last 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, 100 years, it has averaged about 8 to 10% a year. And the answer why is pretty simple. It's because businesses have grown and improved over time. And those businesses are what make up the S&P 500. So that's the same thing. And then if you invest in an individual stock, you are buying shares of a single company. And so the question of should we invest in stocks, if you've got that foundational understanding and you enjoy learning about business and reading, like paying attention to the stocks that you own, the common knowledge of, well, we're not smart enough to invest in stocks or we don't have an MBA or a finance degree. So we should leave that to the people on Wall Street or CNN or CNBC or whatever. I don't agree with that at all. I think all of us are capable of investing in stocks. And I, I'm speaking from experience and my track record. I have a bachelor's degree in criminal justice and I was in the Air Force on active duty for eight years. Like I have no business. If you think, if you look at the people on CNBC, I have no business investing in individual stocks, but it's absolutely changed my life. And so, yes, if people are interested in investing in individual stocks and they have an understanding of why they're investing in them and what makes them successful, and they've spent the time learning. And so, you don't just start one day and go 100% full in. You've got to set yourself, and we could talk about this, you got to set yourself up to learn over time. And so, we'll probably get into that next and I'll stop there if you have any questions or want to dig deeper on anything. Yeah, no, I think that makes a ton of sense. If we're smart enough to purchase products, we're likely smart enough to purchase stocks is the way I think about it. Because anytime you're purchasing a product, you're making a bet that it's going to work. And if you just dig a little bit deeper, there's a company behind that. And if you believe that the product is going to last a long time or the service in some cases, chances are the company will as well. And that taking that first principles approach 
is a really great way of getting started at a super basic level, right? I, I think a lot of time, like you said, there's a ton of bad information. There's a ton of kind of pollution out there that makes this seem very, very complicated. But in reality, it, it's a lot simpler. But no, I'll let you keep going. I think um, a question that comes to mind is, great, I want to invest in stocks. You mentioned this idea of, you know, just because I want to invest in stocks doesn't necessarily mean I need to be 100% invested day one. How much money do you need to get started? And how should I be deploying that over time? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. And that's kind of a natural next step, right? And so to talk a little bit more about like investing in, in individual stocks to be, begin with. And, and I had to figure this out myself and I'm not trying to pump our service at 7investing, which you can find more out about at 7investing.com and you can sign up if you want to. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> not kidding, but I'm also not pumping it. I honestly did. I started by... The real way I started was I, I had in 2011, I had like $8,000 left over from a loan that I got before I commissioned into the Air Force. So they offer you this loan for like 3% interest because they know you're about to go and start making $45,000 a year. So it's secure. And the idea is to, it sets you up to like make your first move from college. It's a $25,000 loan. I spent some of it on cruise and road bikes for my then fiance, which is now my wife and myself and an engagement ring and our wedding and stuff like that. I, I didn't need to spend it on getting set up because we had already, I, I had scholarships and stuff like that. But I had about $8,000 left over and I watched Jim Cramer on CNBC and I was like, oh, investing, that looks cool. So I bought whatever stock he was talking about. It was like AT&T and a real estate investment trust. And then the VIX, which is, which is we don't even need to talk about this. It's, it's like something I didn't even understand basically. And I quickly lost like 50% of what I invested. So I was like, investing stupid. It's a gamble. It's not worth it. I really started actually investing and learning about investing by subscribing to a service that I trusted that provided recommendations every month and write-ups about the stocks. And so that's how I got that first exposure and started learning about what makes a stock successful. How do you succeed over time? And what I found was the picks that they had recommended the longest time ago are the ones that were up a thousand percent and two thousand percent, and so then it's like, all right, if you find these great businesses, you can make a lot of money over time, but you got to hang on to them. Okay, so that's the the other kind of piece of that is like, where do I find information? Find a reliable, trusted source. It could be people that you find and trust on Twitter that talk about things for free, or it could be a paid service. That's that's up to you, and that everybody has to decide that on their own. But if if it is somebody and it is a paid service make sure that you can see what their performance has been over time. So we got to have that accountability and that tracking over time, right? And you talked about at the beginning, that's been important to you to watch and me. And that's important for me to see in other people as well. Okay. So what do we need to get started? The cool thing is, is that today, and especially now with apps like Robinhood and the Cash App, even from brokerages like Schwab and Fidelity, zero commissions and a lot of them do fractional shares which means you you don't even have to buy a whole share of a business if amazon stock price is i don't even know what it is $1800 no it's like $2400 a share right yeah. um if it's $2400 a share you don't have to buy a whole share you can buy a fractional share so you can start with $100 but before we think about how much we need to start investing the the most I think a super important thing for me has been the foundation that lies under it, right? Before I started investing, I needed to make sure that I had relatively secure income, that I was living below my means and able to save a percentage of my income every month. If I had things like 18% credit card debt or super high interest student loans or something like that, I would, I personally would have paid those first before I started investing because you have to pay the, well, sometimes student loans, I guess you don't have to, but there are things with interest rates you have to pay. And it's a guaranteed return on that money if you pay off an 18% credit card that you don't know if you're going to get that or not when you invest. So if you've got all that stuff in place and then you've got a little bit of money built up, some type of emergency fund is going to depend on how secure your job is, what your responsibilities are. Right now I have two kids 
and a, a spouse who works. When I first started, we we didn't have kids and, and I was engaged. So I had I, I didn't need as much saved up as I do now. So that number is going to change, right? But people say anywhere from three months to a year of emergency fund. That just depends on what makes you comfortable. An option, and this is what I did when I started, was every month I would take, you know, whatever my percentage was that I was going to try to invest, I would take uh, half of that to build up our emergency fund and the other half would go into stocks. And so if you can start with saving 1% of your income every month, save 1%. We have slowly grown that over time to where we were trying to save 25% of our income every month or 30%. And that comes in super handy when all of a sudden one of you loses your job and you've lost 50% of your income we had a 30% cushion that, that was going to investing, not expenses. So that's the other way that that can be super helpful. So if you have that stuff in place, and, and I call that the foundation, having those things in place allowed me to then invest in stocks, right? If you have that stuff in place, you can start with as little as $100 to um, up to $1,000, $2,000, $3,000, whatever it is you can, you can do. And then, so some people have a bulk of money that, that they think they're ready to invest now. If you've got that, data shows that it's usually best to put that in the market all at once. But we're all human beings and that's hard to do. So what I've done in the past is say I had $1,000, that was a lump sum of money. I would split that in four and invest that over four months. And then I would invest an even amount each month for four months for that lump sum. And then I would just continue with whatever my monthly additions were and put that in every single month. And that's the next key part is once you, once I got started investing every single month, I put money in and invested no matter what the market was doing or what the people on CNBC was saying, or if COVID was happening or if it wasn't, I just invested every month and I still do. And that can go with individual stocks or if I had a work-sponsored 401k program for a while and they did, they did a match. So uh, a lot of them do, if you invest or if you put in 5% of your pay, they'll match 2.5% or something like that. Even when I was doing individual stocks, as long as I had that at my work, that was, and my wife as well, that was the first thing that we would do is we would put up to that 5% in our 401k because that 2.5% back is a free 50% return on that money. And then the extra that we had would go to individual stocks in different types of accounts. And I don't want to make this too advanced, but the different accounts that we used for individual stocks, and we still use them, self-directed Roth IRA, which is a retirement account. You pay taxes on that money first, and then you never pay taxes on it again, as long as they don't change tax laws. I think that max is like $6,000 a year, depending on your income. Once we were able to match that out, then we opened up a joint brokerage account, which is a not a retirement account. That's, that's taxable money. And we started adding to that. So the first layer was whatever the match was on our work-sponsored 401k. That went into an S&P 500 index. The next layer was maxing out our Roth IRAs. That was individual stocks. The next layer was whatever else we had going into a joint brokerage account, which is not a retirement account. And the idea with that money, and this is the money that allowed us to purchase the house that we're in. It's the money that we plan to use for our kids' college in 18 years if they need it. It's the money that in five years, if we wanted to purchase a vehicle, we would use for that because it's, it's not retirement money. That's the purpose of this, this joint brokerage is it's kind of like I view it as the bridge between like 10 years from now to when we're 59 and a half and we can withdraw from our, our Roth IRAs and our retirement accounts. So I just like went way deep. I don't know if I got too far ahead. Answer your question. Yeah. Start, if you got a lump sum of money, split it up is what I did. I'm not giving anybody advice here. If you, and then do it time-based, not, not stock market numbers-based. If you have regular additions and, and paycheck contributions, I just continually invest those. And you can start with $100, you can start with $10,000, and I'm sure we'll get into platforms and stuff next. Yeah. So what, do you, what questions do you have after that spiel? Yeah, no, I think uh, you touched on a lot of great points. I think to summarize, or at least one point that I found really interesting was you saw different accounts or different tranches in different horizons. So 
some chunks of money you kind of view as, okay, this is what I'll spend or likely use kind of in the next five to 10 years, some kind of in the 10 plus years or perhaps 20 plus years and whatnot. And then some more so in the short-term range, which obviously goes into your cushion, right? And I think as long as you think in those, or as long as people think in those different chances, it's a lot easier to invest. It's a lot easier to be comfortable with the way you're making investments and really puts everything into perspective because you know, day-to-day fluctuations don't matter as much at that point, which is really important when you're making these investments. But let's keep going. I think, you know, platforms, obviously very important. I think you touched on a good chunk of them as far as the difference between fractional investing. So the ability to talk about or, you know, to invest in, you know, large price stocks like an Amazon, right? Without having to break your entire allocation, if you will. And, and I think those are really important considerations to look at. I don't believe Canadian platforms at least have that, but you know, there's a few platforms like Robinhood uh, that allow for that. So yeah, maybe sp- speak a bit more on that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm not familiar with Canadian platforms at all. So you'll have to, you'll have to provide that info, but I have never ever used Robinhood or Cash App for investing. I think I had $100 in Robinhood just to test it out. I just don't trust them. I forget how many times. It was like four times that Robinhood was just down because of volatility and stuff like that. Robinhood and Cash App are great for accessibility, right? They make investing accessible for a lot of people. But there's a there's a danger there that it almost can make it too easy, right? And and there's data out there that shows, and this even happened at a lot of the bigger brokerages when the commissions went away, how much people trade on Robinhood and Cash App generally, I think a lot more than, than people on other platforms. And so just be careful on those platforms and know that there's a downside to, and this is really with anything that's commission-free, any commission-free trading. If it's real wealth is built in the stock market by holding great businesses for a long time, when you don't have to pay anything to trade in and out of those businesses, it makes it a lot more tempting to trade in and out of those. And I found myself doing it than if you had to pay a small commission to, to buy and sell shares. So with that, just be careful about falling into that trap of, well, I can trade in and out. There's no commissions. I'm going to go with what's easiest. The, the platform I have always used is interactive brokers. That one's pretty advanced. So for things, we've got some accounts set up for our kids and stuff. I went with Schwab for our kids because it's been around for hundred plus years, reliable, secure, great reputation. There's no commissions on it. And they just announced stock slices, which is where you can buy fractional shares. So that's coming to the platform. It's not as cool and easy and, and all your friends aren't going to be on it like on Cash App and Robinhood, but just be careful about the downsides to, to those apps as well. And Schwab has been fantastic. Fidelity is another great one. And then I use interactive brokers for, for my own stuff. Awesome. Switching gears a bit, thinking about how do you actually make the investment now? I think we give a lot of context as to how do you get started. A lot of people have probably heard of ETFs, basically an aggregated way of investing in several stocks or perhaps in a particular industry or the entire market overall um, versus the approach that more or less you take, which is really focusing on individual stocks. What's the difference between stocks and ETFs and how do you how do you look at investing one versus the other? It seems like you've certainly taken the approach of investing in individual stocks. Yeah. So ETFs can are a fantastic thing. And so kind of they're and I don't know exactly if this is right chronologically, but I believe there was mutual funds, which for a long time had fees, which you pay annually this this amount. So if your account is $1,000, you would, you would pay this amount. If it was $100,000, you would pay this amount. So as your account grows, it gets your fees. You actually pay a lot more in fees. They had fees of like 2%, 3%, even higher. And then you know, even as few as five years ago, it was still very common. I think even now it's common to have over a 1% fee in a mutual fund. Yeah. Mutual funds are basically just a fund. It's a group of stocks that make up some type of fund with some type of strategy that you can invest in. So if you like biotech or, or technology or gas companies or whatever, there's a mutual fund for that. They're kind of actively traded, which is 
how they justify those 1% plus annual fees. And there's different ways that they're fee, but basically that's what kind of the talking about the evolution here of, of funds. That was kind of the basis of mutual funds. And then there was index funds, which an index fund is a lot more passive. Fees are a lot lower. The big firm kind of known for these is Vanguard, right? They like introduced much, much lower fees and index funds. That's where you can buy uh, a passive index fund that basically just tracks the S&P 500. And instead of 1% or more, you pay 0.25% or even 0.05%, which is super cheap when you think about it compared to 1%. Same deal, index funds are just a broad index. And then ETFs are kind of, and I'm not an expert on this stuff, but it's like, to me, an ETF is basically like mutual funds, just cheaper because they're, they're, there's a strategy set for them, but they're not actively managed really by a portfolio manager like a mutual fund is. And so if you like biotech or if you like retail or if you like commercial real estate or technology or whatever, you can probably find an ETF, an exchange traded fund to invest in those. And, and another difference between exchange traded funds, ETFs and index funds is ETFs, I think you're traded throughout the day, whereas index funds, you either like open them or close them at the beginning or the end of the day. I don't think you can really trade in between. So that's kind of like the, the funds, whether it's mutual funds, ETFs, index funds. It's like a group of stocks aligned around some type of strategy that you can invest in. And those can be great options for people if you don't want to pay attention to a single individual stock. I prefer individual stocks one, because when I first started, people were like, ah, you're not smart enough to do this, like have somebody manage your money. And I'm the type of person, everything I've ever done in my life, I'm like when somebody tells me that, or if somebody tells me I can't do something, I'm going to be like, well, I can, and I'm going to prove you wrong. And so that was kind of like part of it to begin with. And I, I told myself, if after a couple of years, I'm not beating an index fund, then I'll just go index investing. But I believe I can, I can do this. So I choose individual stocks because I believed that I could substantially outperform the market, which, which when you say that, and you're a, I'm a, I still think I'm a 30 year old kid. I think I'm 30, I mean, 30 or 31. I don't know. I think I'm 31. But back when I started, I was like, 25, 26, man, that's getting old. When I say that, like I can beat this index fund as a 25 year old, people, people think you're just like full of yourself and you're crazy. When you've got Warren Buffett saying, Hey, people should just invest in index funds. Right. But I believed that I, I could beat the average from the market. And, and then fortunately over, over time I have, and, and it, we wouldn't be in the position we're in if if I, if we didn't invest in individual stocks. The the it's just absolutely changed our lives. Now there's a risk that it doesn't go that way and you lose to the market. So again, if you're going to do this, like set yourself up on a path where you do something where you force yourself to either prove that you can do it or, or prove that you can't. And again, not giving individual advice here. When I say you, I'm talking about me just to protect myself from from people yeah. coming after me trying to sue me. Yeah. And so, and then we can, we can talk about how to find good investments and stuff like that. But yeah, any, any comments there? Yeah, no, I think that that makes a lot of sense. It's, it's a tough one because you, you essentially need to have a lot of conviction in the picks that you make. However, a lot of that conviction kind of builds over time, right? It's impossible to know everything that you want to know day one. And so making and thinking in bets which by the way is a great book. Yeah. Um, it is kind of the approach that I personally take and you know would recommend anyone else to take. And on that point, I mean, like you were alluding to, what are some of the steps that you take to identify and make a new investment? Yeah. So I mean, real quick on the thinking about like how how to invest and how to set yourself up. There's a couple ways you can do it, right? You you can and this is this is how Warren Buffett destroyed the market for I don't know 30, 40, 50 years or however long is a concentrated portfolio, right? So he only owned at sometimes like four companies up to I don't I don't even know exactly because I don't follow him closely, but but 10, certainly no more than 20 companies. I don't think he's ever owned more than 20 companies, at least public investments. So the idea there is concentrated, a concentrated portfolio. 
that has allowed him to really outperform the market. And that's what you can do with a concentrated portfolio. But if you get it wrong, you can seriously underperform the market. So especially when I was starting, I just put the same amount into every investment that I made. And that's our model at 7 in, at seven Investing is every month we recommend seven stocks. And we track our performance on the site is, is as if we were investing in all of those equally. And what will happen over time is your stocks that really win will make up more of a percentage of your portfolio, but they're going to do that on their own. It's not because you thought they were going to win and they do. A lot of times the ones that win are ones that you didn't think were going to win. And then your losers make up less and less of your portfolio and they, they start to matter less and less. And so a great approach, and this is the approach I initially took when you start especially to test yourself out is to think, all right, I'm just going to go evenly across and then let, let the allocation or the size of the position kind of take care of itself. Now, if you really like a company, then you might invest in it once. And then over the next few months, you add different stocks or whatever, and maybe you add that same position in the same amount again. And that's how you can kind of increase your exposure. And generally, if you do that, what I've found is successful is adding to the ones that are actually up, not the ones that are down because the ones businesses that perform well generally keep performing well. And they do that for a lot of reasons. As a business performs well, it's going to attract higher level employees. They're going to get a better reputation sales. They just get more well-known. So there's a lot of reasons behind that momentum of why businesses that do well can usually continue to do well over time. There's extremes. So it, things can get extreme like the marijuana stocks, a couple of years ago, it just yep. got ridiculous, right? So there's a difference there, but but that's a little bit on the allocation. And so back to your question, which I just gave you a super long winded answer. How do you how do you find companies to invest in, right? Like what makes a good opportunity for a business? And again, the way I got my initial ideas was subscribing to a service. So that's a, a great way to start. And there's a lot of them out there. Me as I like how I pick and find companies now is really, I use the people, the network I have and the people I follow on Twitter, you see different stock ideas every day. I subscribe to Wired Magazine and The Economist and Stratechery from Ben Thompson. And, and the way I see those is like, kind of just as, as like idea generation and, and you're getting exposed to what's happening in industries and different companies doing different things. And then I personally use Y charts, which is like a, a platform to get different numbers and information about stocks to, to kind of see really quickly, if I've never heard of a company before, I can get a quick look at its numbers there and what the company does. I'll, I'll know right there, like if it's a no, you just like throw it out and don't, don't think about it. But if, then you've got like a maybe pile and that's where I'll dig into the company's website and learn more about their products, their investor relations page and start to look at their last year of quarterly results and see what does the business do? What are the numbers that matter? How have their sales been? What does management say? And when they, when they give guidance or they project how they're going to do in the next quarter and then look at the next quarter's results, do they beat it? Is it, do they consistently beat it? And, and so, you know, that's, I don't know. I just gave you like a, not a real, like, hard answer, but I mean, it's, it's a lot of different factors. And I think, you know, if I were to take it into a process, I think first off it's you know, really following smart people around you, right. And, and just getting used to the ecosystem from there, reading, um, different publications, obviously the ones with high reputation, kind of taking some of the really key inflection points that you're seeing and pairing those together, understanding what companies are playing in that space and everyone can be looking and following into different inflections. So just because, you know, you're not following that inflection doesn't mean that that inflection or that particular opportunity is not happening. It's just not being followed by one individual. And I think that's also really important because, you know, some of it is following your gut to an extent and being able to pair things together. And then once you're at that stage and you're following a bunch of companies then, you know, doing the stuff you said, as far as reading some of the news releases, the products, following the products as much as you can, looking at the past investor presentations, and then looking at the overall trajectory 
of the stock and seeing how things go. Obviously, don't do this day one. At least that that would be my advice because it would be way too overwhelming, right? Start to take that equal bet approach that you had talked about earlier. And then as you become more and more vested in one particular stock or a few particular stocks, then double down and really just try to understand the business because now slowly you're becoming a more meaningful shareholder, at least from your perspective and in terms of allocating a good chunk of your portfolio. Yeah. And like a good example, right, is is like what are... You see all these like projections and price targets from analysts and all that stuff out there. When I invest in a company, I have no, I have no price target. I have nothing. I don't know if if they hit this, then the stock could be at uh, 120 versus 130. Like I don't do any of that because I don't see any point in it. Right? If I have to do that for an investment, then it's not the right investment for me. The way I think about it is like, okay, look at this look at this company and what they do, right? And let's take Shopify as an example. A lot of people have heard of Shopify. I wrote an article on it in 2000, I think it was like 2015 or 16 when Shopify was at like $37 a share. And it was an article that was like positive on it. And I thought it had a lot of opportunity, right? And what I saw in Shopify was just like, huh, they're kind of doing this e-commerce thing, right? Well, what's a what's a company that has done well in e-commerce? Well, there's this little company called Amazon, right? And no, I don't, I didn't think, and I still don't think that Shopify is going to become a $1 trillion company like Amazon has become. But what I saw was like, okay, more and more people are buying things online. Amazon has become very successful doing it, but there's a lot of bad things about Amazon's model. They, they compete with some of their, their sellers in different ways and it could be a messy platform in some ways. Well, Shopify kind of takes a lot of that stuff out and it, they're like empowering sellers to start their own business. So I liked that. And really just on that and then looking at like, holy cow, their their last report, like they had strong growth. That was enough for me to think positively about the company. And if, if I would have just bought those shares and held them, I own shares for like a year or two years and then I sold them because I thought Shopify got too expensive. Well, since I sold, it's up to like another 400%. So the lesson there is like find great businesses, buy them, and then and then plan to really never sell until you you need the money, and that's how most people will will do the best. And another example, and I wrote about this for a seven investing piece, but before two thousand eight, right? Two thousand eight was a great financial crisis, terrible. The market was down like forty percent or fifty percent or something like that, horrible. Before that, if if you would have thought about well, what are five great businesses, right? It would be pretty good to think like. Amazon, Google, Netflix, Disney, and Starbucks. Those are those are five. I don't even know if I that was four or five. Oh, and Priceline. I said four. So that's five. Those would have been pretty easy businesses for anybody that's a consumer out there to think like, wow, those are good businesses. If you would have bought them, and I forget exactly the number, but it, it, this is close enough to give people a general idea, right? If you would have bought them in, I think it was 2003 and held all the way to 2020, even like in this, these numbers came after we had just dropped 35% or whatever, right after COVID. If you would have invested $10,000 in each of those, so $50,000 and held through the great financial crisis, which was one of the worst drawdowns in history and into the middle of the, one of the next worst drawdowns, that $50,000 is worth over $3 million just by finding five great businesses and putting an even amount into each each one of them. And, and even if you shrink that time horizon to like, another example I gave was 2007 to 2009, which is basically like right before the financial crisis to right after, they were still up combined like 300%. So again, like you could have invested in those companies without doing detailed analysis. And I'm, that's not me saying like analysis doesn't matter, but the idea that this has to be intimidating and scary, I don't agree with it. it. You can take small amounts and invest in what you think are great companies and then learn the analysis piece over time through your own reading, a service that you subscribe to, whatever. We do try to provide that type of information to, to subscribers at investing. And I'm not like pumping this because I want people to subscribe, but, but that was so valuable to me as an individual investor that that's the type of stuff I want to provide to other people so that they can go out and make, make their own decisions and, and do invest if they want to, you know? Totally. And yeah, you touched on a lot of great points there. I think for me, one that I think is underrated is the idea of 
doubling down on a stock that is already up. A lot of times, human tendency, or at least my tendency, is to look at the stocks that are down, believe that they're undervalued, or believe that I can make more money on that over the long term because they're quote unquote bargains, and double down on them because they're undervalued. However, I think what you said makes total sense, right? I think if you look at the great businesses, they will continue to be up despite all the crisis. And if anything, over time, we'll have a larger or more substantial gain relative to other businesses. And so why don't you talk a little bit more about that, about when to double down on an investment versus exiting an investment, because both are very difficult calls to make. You really need to believe that, A, you have it right, even though the market doesn't, and you're willing to double down or take on that risk, or B, you've made a mistake, right? And you should probably leave that investment. How do you make that decision? Yeah, it's hard. I make mistakes all the time. The way I think about it, and again, this is going to be different for everybody depending on where they're at in their timeline and horizon and stuff like that, right? I want to be an investor for the rest of my life, right? And that's how long I want this money to stay in the market. That doesn't mean that I'm never going to sell an investment, right? But like, I need to get better about this. I have been too active. I have traded too much. And and you'll probably experience this yourself, but I, like, I, the more I was trying to like share information, the more compelled I was to take action. Yep. And, and when I say this, this is in my, the newsletter that I was doing for free for a little while, I traded in and out like far too much. My performance was still great, fortunately, but one of the things I'm excited about for doing seven investing is like our model, we're not going to recommend selling, which sounds crazy, right? But my performance personally would be better if I would have never sold anything. And as long as I was contributing, just kept adding to my next best idea. So the first thing that people could do to improve their performance is probably sell like 75% less frequently than they do. That's true for me. And I think it's true for most people. The other way I think about it is perfect example is the companies that I've invested in like through this crisis, through COVID and the ones that I haven't. I haven't invested in airlines or Boeing or other companies that were down like 60, 70%. Investing in those companies could have made a quick like 50, 80, 100% or whatever. Like those companies have dropped and then rebounded extremely well. But the returns I want are not the 50 and 100% in a month or two months or three months. I want the Google and the Netflix and Amazon that over 10 years are going to return 10,000%. And so to answer your question, a lot of times if a stock drops and it's not because of the whole market or something unexpected like COVID, that, that's different. But if it drops because their business starts to underperform or something like that, their, their quarterly reports start to be less than what people were expecting and it happens on a consistent basis, that's a sign that like I don't... I don't try to get in those and think they're going to turn the business around and turn around. Something has happened there. The business lost momentum. It's going to be tough to pick it up. I want the companies that continue to do well and, and kind of beat expectations and raise their guidance. And so if I'm going to add more to a company, it is generally going to be a company that the price now is higher than when I first bought it. Unless you get an opportunity like COVID-19 and one of my favorite businesses, Alteryx, was, you know, it had traded up to 150 after their last earnings, which is super strong, and then traded down to like 80, I think, during COVID. Like that was one that I added to when it traded down because it was the business went from performing on all cylinders to something completely out of their control happening and in it dropping. So the whole market drops, you know, you might benefit from adding to what were previously your biggest winners. But if it doesn't, then generally I'm just looking to either add to my newest best idea or whatever company has performed the best over time. And one thing, I do look at the price to sales ratio, which is just basically, you can figure that out. I mean, it says it on a lot of websites, but it's the last 12 months of revenue. If you divide the market cap by the last 12 months of revenue, that gives you the price to sales ratio. And I invest a lot in software as a service companies, technology type companies, price to sales ratio is kind of how those are measured. 
I don't pay too much attention to it, but if it gets super, super extreme, then that'll be in, when I say that, I mean like 30, 40, something like that, that will cause me to maybe not add to that, that one, because maybe it's the expectations have gotten a little bit too high. So I do look at some of those metrics, but again, that's, that's kind of like beyond beginner level or whatever. And for most of the time I've been investing, I didn't really even need to pay attention to that. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. I think next question that I have is really around the difference between investing and trading. I think to your point, if I had done nothing in the past couple of months and just let things be perhaps doubled down on the investments I had already made, I probably would have done a lot better than what I have currently done. And that that's in large part because of this idea of, of trading versus investing. So what are some of the things that you do to avoid day trading, knowing that, you know, it doesn't always work, right? And, and it's hard to kind of push off that urge. But what are some of the things that you do there? Yeah, I've fallen for it and lost bunches of money trying to be a day trader and, and buy options and stuff like that. Unfortunately, like it's one of those things where it's like most people have got to try it and lose some money to like to learn not to do it. And I'm, I'm like still one of those people. I, I still do it a little bit but not with a substantial amount of my portfolio, right? Like most of my portfolio is in companies that I want to own for years, right? And so unfortunately it's like, well, sometimes people just have to learn the hard way and that's what I had to do. If you can avoid it and stay disciplined, the best thing to do is if if you're thinking about making a purchase because you think a stock's going to do earning, like have really good earnings or, or sell because you think earnings are going to be bad or something like that, just don't do it, right? And I mean, you know, I know people that, they don't let themselves like buy or sell a stock within two days of earnings, like on the front side or two days afterwards. It's like, that's just, they've just made that rule for themselves that they don't let themselves do that. Right. That's one option is to just to take a lot of that out. But if, you know, Warren Buffett says he's got a punch card or whatever, and, and most people would do better if, if they had a punch card, you're only allowed to sell 20 times throughout your entire career or something like that. So those are a couple ways you can build the habit of, of just, buying versus not selling, but it just comes down to if you're thinking in a year plus, that's an investing mindset. If you're thinking in the next quarter, the next week, the next day, or less than a year, you know, that's, you're, you're starting to think about trading versus investing. And that's where I've made like 95% of my mistakes is thinking about things less than a year out. Yeah, definitely. And last question on all of this is what's a healthy time commitment towards investing stocks, right? So, you know, kind of circling back to the typical person, full-time job, probably, you know, investing a good chunk of their cash in stocks, likely if they are investing in stocks. And so it can get pretty stressful, right? You're constantly checking it. Yeah. I think the worst things you can do to yourself is actually downloading the mobile app because yeah. the tendency to just check and see how things are going. And then obviously the tendency to sell from that is a lot higher. But what are your thoughts on that? Is there a certain rule or framework that you have there? Yeah. I, and this all kind of comes back to the beginning of the conversation, right? Like I am, I love learning about business and technology and stuff like that. So investing in a way was like my education on business and technology. And so it helped me a lot of ways professionally. And it's actually turned into the opportunity I have with Seven Investing, right? Like it's because of this thing that was a hobby and something I was, I was working on for, for my own family to now like basically my full-time job now. And, and so there's, there's that, right? But then the entire time I've been investing, I've had a full-time job, family and stuff like that. So I gave up some of the things that I enjoy doing, like playing video games and maybe watching Netflix or whatever a few nights a week and would spend that time reading about stocks, reviewing conference calls, listening to conference calls. And so, you know, it's going to be different for everybody, but I would, I would mostly spend like five to 10 hours a week doing it. Right. And I didn't think I had that time, but it turns out I really did have that time. And even like, this is even downtime when I, we travel a lot in the military and on flights and car rides and stuff like that. I would listen to earnings conference calls and read transcripts and stuff like that. And I was interested in it though. So you've got to be interested in it. But then, so it sounds like it's a lot of time, right? But then when I started to look at how my portfolio had grown and the amount of money that it made, it was literally, it's at the point now where 
the growth in our portfolio each year has been anywhere from one to five times as much as our combined salary. Right. And so then when you take that 10 hours a week and divide that, divide the amount that that has returned, it comes out to be much higher paying than both of our full-time jobs. And so, you know, the question was like, well, then how come you don't just invest for a living or whatever? And, and our, my answer to that was like, well, having these full-time jobs allows us to have this income and save and stuff like that. Plus investing doesn't take a full-time job if you're, if you do it with the long-term in mind, you don't have to sit in front of your computer all day, which is what I love about long-term investing versus day trading. So that's another answer. How do you define day trading versus long-term investing? How much time do you have to be staring at your computer or your app? If it's more than, you know, an hour a day or or 30 minutes a day, probably trading, not investing, right? I would even say like more than five hours a week or 10 hours a week, probably trading, not investing, right? When we calculated that way, that made that 10 hours a week seem like it was the most valuable thing I was doing, you know? So then when it comes to the other question is like, all right, how do you look at individual companies, right? And so if a company is less than 1% of my portfolio, really don't even pay attention to it unless I want to learn more and maybe add to it. If it's 5% or has grown to 10%, those are the companies that I'll dedicate the time to listening to their earnings calls and learning about. So as your companies grow and your portfolio grows, whichever companies become a bigger part of your portfolio, those are the ones you need to pay attention to and, and think about more. Yeah, definitely. I mean, these are all great pieces of advice and I think really sheds a light on how simple it could be as far as getting started on investing and you know all the great resources out there. I think Summon Investing is a great resource. I think there's a bunch of other great resources out there as well, but really just starting to do the work, starting slow. And, and the biggest part as always is just time and patience. I think uh, that's probably the biggest value add to any portfolio. I think any portfolio in a short period of time you know, is highly unpredictable, but over a long period of time, as long as you invest in great businesses, um, tend to do pretty well. So with that, I mean, Austin, any closing thoughts or ideas? Yeah, no, I think, I think that is the most important part, right? And Monish Pabrai, who's a fantastic investor, is very well known in the investing circle. I heard him say a quote. He said he's smart enough to find the best stocks, but he's too dumb to hold them. And so if, if there's anything that people can do to improve their returns, it's, it's probably to invest in great businesses and then just don't sell them. So invest in a way that allows you to hold on to the best businesses. If what you do is focused on that, you will be a successful investor, most likely. Perfect. And that's a great point to leave it off. Thank you so much, Austin, for spending the time. Really look forward to seeing where things go. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And I'm excited to watch your journey and and continue to learn from you as well. So thanks. Awesome. Thank you.